I want us to open our Bibles this morning back to the book of Romans. We are in Romans 1 and we're taking uh, a look uh, through the entirety of this book and we've kind of camped out here in chapter 1. This is the third message in chapter 1 and we're just now getting to the halfway point of chapter 1. But I do think that it's important uh, to establish a good foundation of what we're dealing with here before we embark upon the rest of this book. Um, I pointed out a few weeks ago that just the greeting of Paul to the church at Rome, he's writing from Corinth addressing writing to the church at Rome, that this greeting is some 10 times longer than his normal greeting. And uh, so we're unpackaging some of this. Paul is setting forth, remember the church at Rome is a church that he did not establish. It was not founded by Paul. Uh, there was, were some personalities back and forth that, were, that knew Paul. Paul knew them there in the life of the church at, at Rome. Uh, but for the most part, they are unfamiliar with Paul. And so Paul is setting forth his credentials, if we will, if that was even necessary. Uh, but he's setting forth a theology. This is a very long, thoughtful uh, season of writing for Paul to the church at Rome. Uh, it's quite a contrast to Galatians. Uh, uh, Galatians has a very harsh tone to it, a rebuking, if you will. Uh, but Romans, on the other hand, is very thoughtfully written, and uh, we will get into that. Uh, but, but it's a book that, that really is, we should not, our starting place for Romans should not be at a place where we think it's difficult. That should not be your presupposition. Uh, that somehow Romans is hard and difficult to understand. Uh, it was made hard and difficult by theologians and scholars. 16th century scholars, the Reformation. Uh, for 2,000 years, the church has had a, a long understanding, historic grammatical understanding of the book of Romans. And so Paul was not writing to theologians. He wasn't writing to scholars. He was writing to people like us. That's the hashtag, Romans for Dummies. Um, I actually got curious about that. You know, you've seen all the books, you know, Plumbing for Dummies and, uh, you know, Gardening for Dummies and those series of books. I got, I got curious when I came up with that hashtag. I wonder if there is a uh, Romans for Dummies. So I Googled it. There actually is. There's a book called Romans for Dummies. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to go with it anyway. I, in my mind, I came up with it first. Uh, but, but know that Romans is not that difficult. It was written to common people who understood what Paul was speaking to. And uh, so our challenge is to go back to that culture, the people to whom he was writing, and what did it mean then for them? And then the challenge for us is spanning that cultural gap and how does it have application for us today? So today we're at Romans chapter one, and I want us to look at verses 14 through 17. And these are vital verses, I think, uh, because really this is just a synopsis of the rest of Romans. Uh, Paul gives us a glimpse of what he is going to speak to, especially for the next 11 chapters. Uh, and it's all wrapped up in these verses. So I think it is vital. I think it was vital for the church then in Rome. It is nonetheless vital for us today to take a look at these verses. It's focused on the gospel and the implications of that for the church. I heard a story some time ago about a widow that was lonely. And one of her friends had suggested that uh, she get a pet. And so she went to a pet store and uh, she, you know, she considered the typical dog or cat, but then she really just didn't want anything that was running around at her feet that she might trip over. So uh, explaining all this to the store owner, he suggested that she get a parrot and that the parrot will actually talk to you. And she thought, well, that's a, a wonderful idea. So she bought the parrot and took it home. 
And uh, three or four days later, came back to the store and told the store owner, you know, this parrot you sold me, it, it hasn't spoken, hadn't said a word. He said, really, I find that hard to believe. He said, now, when you, when you purchased that, that parrot, did you, did you buy one of those little mirrors that go in the cage? You know, parrots like to look at themselves. Well, no, you didn't mention that. Oh, well, take the mirror home, you put it in the cage, and, that, and the parrot will start talking. So she did that and uh, again returned to the store three or four days later and told the store owner, hey, listen, this parrot, you told me, it's still, it's, still not, it's still not talking. He said, well, really? He said, that shocks me. Do you have one of those ladders inside the cage? You know, parrots like climbing ladders up and down the ladder. Well, no, you didn't tell me that. So she purchased a ladder and took it home, put it in the cage. Parrot still didn't talk. Comes back three or four days later. He says, I just don't understand why that parrot's not talking. Surely when he's swinging, he's, he's talking. Swing, you never said anything about a swing. Oh, yeah, if you're going to own a parrot, you've got to have a swing. Parrots love to swing. Purchase that swing, and I guarantee you he'll start talking. Well, she purchases the swing, takes it home, puts it in the cage, comes back three or four later, three or four days later to tell the store owner, well, my parrot's dead. Dead? I'm shocked. Did he ever say anything? He said, yes, just before he died, he said, do they sell any food down there at that store? <laughs> she had become so focused on the activities of the bird, she forgot the number one thing that keeps a bird alive. The same thing can happen to a church. Churches can get so caught up in programs, activities, projects, entertainment, that they forget the very one thing that brings vitality and life and distinctiveness to the church. And that's the gospel. Our holding forth as God's people, as God's called, as the followers of Christ, us holding forth the gospel, the good news of God in Christ Jesus, the one thing that brings life to the world. And so in our verses today, Paul is going to begin unpackaging this idea of the gospel, how everything related to Christ is the culmination and the fulfillment of all the promises of old. This is what he's going to package over the next 11 chapters, that the person of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every covenant ever made with Israel. And using Jewish scripture as his, his most compelling argument, he shows that going back all the way to Abraham, this was the mind and the intention of God. The redemption of all humanity, Gentiles being grafted in, becoming the people of God, and Israel not by flesh, but Israel by faith. So Paul's mind, as he's going to the church at Rome, he anticipates going to the church at Rome, his desire, as he's already stated, and as we will see throughout the book, his desire is to further, the, to, to, further to expand the gospel to the west of the world, to the western hemisphere, all the way to Spain. That is Paul's desire, and to partner with the church at home so that they will be ground zero, and they will be the support system of the movement of the Christian faith to the West. That's Paul's purpose in writing this book. And so to appreciate that for the church at Rome, for Paul, for the church at Rome, and for us today, it means that you and I need to understand the vitality and the centerpiece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, regarding this gospel, Paul says for us that it is an obligation. In verse 14, Paul writes, I'm under obligation 
both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and the foolish. Now, again, putting ourselves in that cultural context, understanding the people to whom Paul is writing, um, somewhat of a dig maybe to this Roman culture and their, and their sense of honor and glory and power and place in the world. Uh, Paul makes it clear that, that before the Roman Empire, centuries before the Roman Empire, Greeks dominated the world. In fact, the Greeks had a worldview that when they considered people, there, there were just Greeks and then there's everyone else. There are those who are cultured that everyone else is just barbarians. Well, of course, we're familiar with the fact that the Jews had a similar worldview. Jews viewed the world as, as themselves, then everyone else, the nations, the, the Gentiles. But here Paul says what we have, the uniqueness of what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have this explosion of the gospel upon the scene and it turns everything upside down. Three things in particular I want to mention. The first thing that the gospel does as it has exploded itself into the world, this world of elitism, this world of categorizing people between cultured and uncultured, between, between Jews and Gentiles, the first thing that the gospel does is it obliterates, listen, it obliterates all systems of men that we use to categorize and to place people into caste. It obliterates all systems that you and I have as people to categorize people and to put them into sex and different caste in life. Paul makes it clear in this verse that I'm obligated to Greeks, the uncultured, the wise, and the foolish. And for the rest of this book, in fact, in the next, up through chapter five, what he's going to make, what he's going to make evident and very clear is that you and I are all sinners, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The second thing this gospel does, accomplishes, is that it, it reveals the impartiality of God. That God is not partial to a particular people, that my objective, God's objective in bringing forth the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, my gospel, the intent of the gospel, uh, as you would desire to categorize people, uh, my gospel is not for the purpose of making cultured the uncultured. The mind of God does not think like us. I'm not trying to make, God is not trying to make Jews into Gentiles and Gentiles into Jews, the uncultured and into a cultured kind of, of people. He is holding forth a gospel that is available to anyone and everyone, not on the basis of human opinion and how they look. Which brings us to the thing I started with here in verse 14, the third thing that, that this gospel does is that it creates for us a sense of obligation and indebtedness. Because of what Paul had experienced in Christ Jesus, much more so what he has understood through Jewish scripture and the mind and the heart of God regarding this great salvation that he has put in place, this great deliverance and redemption that he's put in place. 
For Paul, this has created for me a sense of obligation. A sense of of indebtedness to people from, from all walks of life. Now you have to appreciate what Paul is saying in this particular context because uh, in contrast to Paul, you had Greek philosophers and what, in what Greek philosophers tried to do, the agenda of Greek philosophers was, was, to, attract, was to attract the moneyed and, and the refined and the cultured and, and the educated. They had no time for the ignorant, the uninformed, the down and, the down and out. But Paul says, I have this sense of obligation and, and indebtedness to people from, from all walks of life. And how, how we need to hear that, church, today. Because when it comes to speaking to the things of God, how often are we guilty when, when we feel this, this prompting of the Holy Spirit that speaks to someone on matters of faith? What do we do? We judge someone. We say, oh, they're, they're probably not the type person that would be interested in this. And our tendency is to just speak to people that that we consider to be kindred spirits, people that that are like us, people that that would probably fit in better. Not not Paul. Paul says, "I I have this sense of indebtedness to everyone. And here's how, here's how we make application of that. Every one of us who, who count ourselves as followers of Christ, there is this sense of indebtedness, obligation that we all feel, that we should feel. And it's not that we're working for our salvation, but a salvation that's real, it works. But when, when we recognize that someone died for us, and that's what overwhelmed me as a new believer and really kind of prompted me to become a follower of Christ, I was overwhelmed by the idea that someone had died for me because I was willing to accept responsibilities for for my sins. And then I I hear this message that there was this one 2,000 years ago that took on my sin and died for me. Well, I felt obligated to live my life for the one that died for me. But it's more than that. See, your salvation is personal, but it's never private. You have a gross misunderstanding of the Christian faith if you think that it is is your privatized religion. Because Paul is saying this obligation that I feel as a follower of Christ, this obligation that I feel for the one that died for me, I have a sense of obligation to all those for whom Christ died. And Paul says to to the church at Rome, you need to share in this obligation. It's not about just you. It's not about those just like you. But we share together and I'm coming alongside with you so that we can fulfill this, this sense of duties. We can fulfill this obligation that we share together for the rest of the world that has not yet heard the gospel message. It was a burden carried by Martin Niemöller, a German pastor who was arrested for his resistance to Hitler. One evening when he was in his jail cell, he had a dream. And in this dream, Hitler was standing at the judgment bar of God. And God was asking why he had had never entrusted his life to him and never followed his son. And Hitler said, "I've, I've never heard the gospel. I don't know what it is of which you speak. 
And the face of God, Niemöller said, the face of God turned to me in that dream and said to me, Niemöller, you spent an hour with this man on one occasion and you never spoke of me to him? He said, I awoke from that dream with a whole different mindset. That from that day forward, I would not cross the path of anyone without speaking of my Savior, speaking of my Lord. It was Niemöller who said, when they came after the communist, I didn't speak because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the union laborist and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a member of, of the union. And then they came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up because, because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak up. Paul says that we speaking to us no less than he was writing to the church at Rome, we're under obligation with this gospel that has been entrusted to us to not make evaluations of people on the basis of how they look, who they are, where they're from, and try to determine on the basis of such superficial things how they will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you, I was least likely After this sermon, uh, I probably even should. I probably shouldn't even share this. After the message, of, I'm going to though. <laughs> After the last service, uh, someone said to me, "I was talking to a friend, and they they wondered if you would even iron your pants today, since it's Mother's Day." <laughs> I said, "Well, I don't know who said that." I said, "But you can go tell them that I won't be." Because my mother knows the difference between a whitewashed sepulcher that looks good on the outside but smells like a rotting corpse on the inside and someone who's actually had a heartfelt decision for Jesus Christ. You see how we make judgments on things that don't matter? How they look? Are they like me? Will they be receptive to the gospel? Paul says we're under obligation because the gospel has been experienced by us. It has been entrusted to us. We are not in a position to make evaluations of who's worthy. But we're indebted to all those for whom Christ died. Secondly, regarding this gospel, Paul says that it's a conviction. It's a conviction that we need to have regarding the magnitude of this gospel and, and what it is. He says... Here in uh, notice verse 15 and 16. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And for the next 11 chapters, Paul's going to unpackage all the implications of that. What that means, he's going to take this, uh, this faith, and what he calls faith to faith in the passage to come. Uh, this progression of faith. He's going to show how going all the way back to the covenant with Abraham. 
how this covenant of Israel has, has, has now been fulfilled in, in the person of, of Jesus Christ. But church, when we talk about this gospel and our conviction, understanding the gospel, too often we take that word salvation when we hear it. In our first blush response when I hear salvation or saved, I'm saved, I've, I've experienced salvation. Most of us reduce it down to this, this little, this little um, short, simple meaning that, that salvation means I've, I've, I've missed hell and I've made heaven. But in fact, there's, there's really not much of that in Scripture. And of course, salvation culminates in, in eternal life. But the salvation of, of which Scripture speaks, this, this deliverance, this redemptive work of God, uh, it, again, we tend to reduce it down to something that is very private. Yes, it's personal in that you do have to make a decision regarding your relationship to Christ, but it's never privatized. It's not just yours and no one else's. In fact, this salvation has to do with the redemption of all creation. Paul will say in Romans when we get to it that all of creation groans for the redemption of God. So salvation is about the redemption of God's created or all of creation groans for salvation, for God's redemption. And so when we see the cataclysmic profundity of how, of the impact of this gospel, Paul says that if we really believe this, if, if we truly have convictions about this, well, it's going to be evident in what we do with our time and our energy and our resources, what our, what our focus is to be about in life. We can't just think about it as just, as just escaping hell, the flames of hell, and, and making it into heaven. That's too short-sighted. That's, that will not drive the church in its mission. Kind of like the story I heard about a young man that was interviewing for an usher's job in a movie theater. And the manager conducting the interview said to him, hey, let's create a scenario here, a little case study. What would you do in, a, in the event a fire broke out? And he said, oh, don't worry about me. I'd get out just fine. Well, that's not, the, that's not the answer you want to hear, nor should it be the answer that you receive about salvation. It, it's much bigger than you getting out and being saved from the flames of eternity. But if I really understand the magnitude of this salvation that has been accomplished through Christ Jesus, like Paul, I'm not ashamed. And it's not a negative expression that Paul is making when he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, I have real convictions about this. And to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is an acknowledgement that everything I stand for the life that I'm seeking to live, to, to honor the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what I say about him, what I say about this gospel, it may, I, I realize this clashes with the culture. This gospel goes against everything, against the standards and the values. What this world holds forth is, is being important and what success looks like. I realize this gospel is, is just a sharp contrast from that. But Paul says, if the mission is going to go forth, if it is going to be perpetuated into our, into our worlds, we've got to, we've got to realize this, this is a very unique and distinctive message that, that we've been given. It doesn't fit in with the messaging 
of the world. In fact, Paul would say in his letter to, first Corinth, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.23, regarding the gospel, he said, it is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Gospel turns everything upside down. The Jews hear Paul talking about this gospel, Jewish believers hear Paul talking about this gospel, and all of a sudden they, they're, they're second-guessing and asking, well, does this nullify? This, is this something that nullifies our faith in our, in our tradition? Is this just something that, is this gospel something that, that just indiscriminately throws God's grace out there for people who are, who are undeserving? Gentile believers think uh, maybe that, that the Jewish faith now is irrelevant. Now, Paul's going to offer correction for all these things. No, no, it's not a nullification. It's not a supplanting of what once was. It's not a breaking of the covenant. It's, and I'm going to show you through Scripture, and Paul's going to do that in the remainder of this book. I'm going to show you through Jewish Scripture how this, how this is the fulfillment of everything God ever prophesied, everything that God ever established in his covenant going all the way back to Abraham. This is not a departure. It's a fulfillment. And so if that doesn't stir within us a conviction knowing that you and I are a part of the redemptive purposes of God and the working out of that salvation, the working out of his purposes going all the way back to, to Abraham, it impacts everything that we believe and what we do with our lives. Paul will see, Paul through Paul we will see that his conviction is that this gospel, that it will, in fact, prevail over all evil seen and unseen, all forces seen and unseen. Romans 8, 38, it will prevail. I wonder if we share in that same conviction. Is it that conviction that brings us here? Is it that conviction regarding the gospel that, that, that informs our life as parents, as husbands and wives, and how we are raising our children in our household? How strong and dominant are these convictions regarding the gospel? Paul says a final thing. He considers the gospel as well to him, to the church at Rome, and to us. He considers it to be a revelation of God. He says in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is as it is written, the line from Habakkuk, but the righteous one will live by faith. It's always been like that. The righteous will live by faith. But this gospel that, that has been entrusted to us, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, the progression of faith he's speaking to. This gospel has been the fulfillment of God's plan from faith to faith. What, what you understood, God has been in the process of revealing himself. It's what revelation is. It's the process by which God reveals himself and makes himself known. He reveals himself in the created order. In fact, when we get next week uh, to chapter 1, verse 20, we're without excuse. Because God has revealed himself in the created order. God has revealed himself in nature. God called out a particular people, Abraham, and, and said, I'm going to reveal myself through the nation of Israel. 
I will reveal myself through my prophets and we get these glimpses of who God is, God's revelation, revealing himself, making himself known. His final act being in the person of Jesus Christ. In him are all things fulfilled. I would ask you to make note of the word righteousness there in that first clause of verse 17, for in it, that is the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That word righteousness is used some 34 times in Romans. You add to that all the other uses of the word justice, that it, as it appears in Romans, righteousness, all of it, all of those derivatives, righteous, righteousness, uh, justice, justification, all of those come from the same root word. In a very simple definition, when it speaks of God's righteousness, is God making things right. It is the righting of the world. This world that is broken, this created order that is broken, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the, in, in cre, in the, in the creation event. Uh, this is the process. God's righteousness being revealed is God righting the world. Writing things through his deliverance, through his plan, through his salvation that will make all things right, all that, that is broken, all that has been corrupted by sin. God's righteousness is the means by which he is making things right so that it will reflect his person, his nature, and bring glory to him. You say, well, look at all that's wrong in the world, the evil and, and the suffering. Is God doing something? Yes, God, God is doing something. That his righteousness is being accomplished. And what, they, and what Paul is doing is going all the way, he will go all the way back to Abraham and, so, and show the righteousness of God as it's being accomplished. Faith to faith, new understandings, a progression of faith. But all of history, from a Christian's perspective, is linear in history. It is moving towards something, God's justice and God's righteousness. It will not be denied. And if that is my conviction regarding this revelation of God, what God has revealed to Paul and he has revealed to the Romans, what he has revealed to us regarding this gospel. If I see this is the means by which God has revealed and made himself fully known in the person of Jesus Christ, then everything else in life is insignificant. Everything else in this world and what it has to offer I'm not even going to say it pales in comparison because there is no comparison. It is altogether insignificant. It doesn't matter. If you really believe this, what this gospel is about and the magnitude of God's salvation, it will transform your role as a parent. What you see as being a priority in the life of your children. This will be your primary Focus. And Paul is saying you and I have an opportunity to be a part of this. 
That's his passion in going to Rome. He wants them to be a part of this furtherance of the gospel going west. You and I being a part of the gospel rippling out from our lives into those parts of our lives where the gospel is not being received by others. To be a light. So with revelation always comes decision. Making choices and determinations about your life. If you really believe this and have convictions regarding this. To be a part of this work. Or not. January 5th, 1988. Some of you may remember this day. But James Dobson of Focus on the Family invited Pete Maravich. Some of you remember the name Pete Maravich. Incredible basketball player. He was Showtime. Magic Johnson said it best that Pete Maravich was Showtime before anyone had ever heard of Showtime. He's an incredible talent. He was the NBA's first first million dollar a year player. Has 43 NCAA scoring records during his playing days at, at LSU. To this day, he still holds the highest Game point average, 40, averaging 44 points a game throughout his college career. A PhD student at LSU in sports management about a decade ago went back and looked at all of Pete Maravich's uh, his games at LSU, and he played before there was a three-point line. But this PhD student went and imposed a three-point line on those films and discovered that if there had been a three-point line during Pete's career, he would have averaged 62 points a game instead of 44. He was a guy who had it all, but he was miserable. When his NBA days were over, he sequestered himself. He did not even want to live, but something happened. And somewhere in there, he encountered someone who talked to him about the gospel, shared their faith with him about Jesus Christ. And Pete said, for me, it was like like fuel being thrown on a fire. It completely transformed his life, turned him 180. And after that, if you were ever around Pete Maravich, if the, if the, you, you could, he could never be around someone five minutes without talking about his faith and his relationship with Christ and how it transformed his life. That's how Dobson got word of, of Maravich and his conversion experience, invited him to be on his, his radio show. That morning, Dobson had the audacity, if you could imagine asking Pete Maravich if, if he wanted to play a pickup basketball game. Dobson and handful of other guys. They always played basketball this particular morning at a nearby gym. And Pete said, yeah, sure. He said, you know, I I went to some celebrity basketball game this year. And he said, but I haven't shot a basketball since then. He said, you know, I've got some kind of neuralgia. There's something going on in my shoulder. I can't even lift it up, barely lift it up above my head. But he said, yeah, I'll go out there and play with you guys. They went out and played about 45 minutes and then they took a water break and and Dobson was talking to Maravich and he said, you know, you you act like you really enjoyed yourself. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, he said, "I, I really did. He said, I think I may start just playing pickup basketball again. Dobson said he turned to walk away and for whatever reason, he turned to look back only to see Pete Maravich falling face first, not breaking his fall at all and hitting the ground. He said, at first, I thought it was a joke. 
He said, but when I walked towards him, I could see that he was having a, a seizure. One of those that was nearby, we immediately started CPR, but to no avail, they took him to the hospital where hospital staff worked on him for another 45 minutes, but he never regained consciousness. Pete Maravich was wearing a t-shirt that day that said, looking unto Jesus. Media came from all over the United States to Dobson's offices and Dobson had the opportunity to, to, to tell Pete Maravich's story and to say, you know what, what defined Pete was not basketball. The most important thing in the life of Pete Maravich was his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Dobson got to talk about that nationally. And then had the task of calling Jackie and Pete's two boys and breaking the news to them. You can only imagine any of us could only imagine being thrust into that circumstance of how rattled you would be. Dobson said he went home that evening, went immediately to his son and said, Ryan, what happened today was not an isolated event. He said, the Bible says that it's appointed unto man once to die. This was a tragedy for Pete and for his family, unexpected, but it's not an isolated event. And he said, someday, Ryan, you're going to get a phone call. Somebody's going to call you, whether your mother or a friend, they're going to call you and they're going to tell you that your dad has died. And he said, Ryan, this may be the last time that, that you and I ever speak on this issue, but he said, it's important to me, son, that, that you use your gifts and your abilities well in this life. But he said, I want you to hear this because there is nothing more important than this. Everything else is insignificant. Be there. Be there. He said, I want to know when I die that you're gonna be there. I want you to have the confidence and the assurance, Ryan, that, that when you get that word, that your dad has died, I want you to have that assurance that your father is there waiting on you. So Ryan, whatever else you do in life, whatever it is you pursue, you do it in a way that you know you will be there. Because I'll be looking for you. When I'm walking the streets of gold, when I'm walking in that heavenly city, Ryan, more than anything else, I want you to be there. When you really get salvation, everything else is insignificant. Nothing else really matters because it impacts and informs everything, every arena in your life. And the conviction that Dobson had regarding the gospel, sharing it with his son, the conviction that Paul has regarding the gospel and wanting the church at Rome to have that same conviction, the same conviction that we should have.
That's our task as a church, to parrot what Paul said 2,000 years ago. Let's pray together. Father, might we not be a people who would substitute any other gospel but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected, exalted at the right hand of God the giver of life, the taker of life. The Father, this simple message would not be corrupted by the desires of men, the wantings of men, the accommodations that men would desire. But that Lord, we would be a church that is committed to clinging and holding forth this gospel, this gospel that brings life. Might it be our conviction. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.